cool. The court. Good day, please be seated. Frank Ivan Tayo Tambupa contre Sa Majesty the Roi versus His Majesty the King for the appellant, Frank Ivan Tayo Tambupa, it's Jonathan Laxer, Caroline Magnan, Darius Bossé. For the intervener, the Commissioner of Official Languages of Canada, Isabelle Hardy, and Elie Ducharme. For the intervener, the Fédération des Associations de Juristes d'Expression Française de Common Law Inc., Shannon Gunn-Emery and Elsie Gagné. For the intervener, Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, Paul Levé, Alexandra Heine. For the respondent, His Majesty the King, Liliane Bantourakis, Rodney Garson Casey, and Jean-Benoît Deschamps. For the intervener, the Director of Public Prosecutions, Jeanette Gobey, and Francois Lacasse. Connor Biltfell, Michael A. Federer-Casey, and Lindsay Frame. Soyez avisés qu'il y a une ordonnance de non-publication dans cette affaire émise par la Cour suprême de la Colombie-Britannique en vertu de l'article 486.42 du Code criminel, et je vous souligne que la juge Obonsanwin, même si elle n'est pas sur le banc, euh, participe à l'audition aujourd'hui. Alors, Maître Laxer. Please go ahead, Mr. Laxer. Justices. Every accused has the right to a trial in the official language of his or her choice. Parliament has established that that right has an informational component. That means that the legislator has imposed on the courts the obligation, and I quote, to ensure that the accused has been advised of his or her rights. And that informational component is at paragraph 3 of section 530 of the Criminal Code. In 2008, the legislator broadened this informational component. It now applies in all cases, including in cases where the accused is represented by counsel. The legislator did this explicitly based on this court's analysis in Bolac. Mr. Laxer, I'm sorry to interrupt you. What conclusion should we draw from the amendment? Is the fact that the legislator said that all accused must be informed of their right, not only those that are not represented by counsel, can we conclude from that that now we can assume that the accused knew that he had the right to request a trial in one of the two official la languages? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that, uh, so even if uh, the accused is, is represented by counsel, it applies. And so the legislator 
responded to this court's analysis of that issue. So there's an extract in the sources that the Minister of Justice referred directly to Bolak uh, when the amendment was made to the criminal code. So this is clearly the legislator's intent to put into practice this court's analysis. Question, but when you characterize 533 as an informational component, I, I agree with that characterization, but are you making a distinction between uh, the informational component at 533 and the substantive right at 531? Because we can't take for granted in all cases that the two will match up. It is possible, for instance, that the error of not providing notice under 530 paragraph 3 does not have the same consequences for everyone with regard to their rights under five, subsection 530.1. It depends on the context and the person involved. Is there a distinction that should be made here, do you think? Answer. The distinction that we propose is a distinction between the informational component and uh, the implementation component. And we look at the analysis of Section 10B that makes that distinction, saying that there is a right to be informed and then there is also a right to have the state and the crown to implement the, um, the choice that is made once the accused has been informed. So a violation of either of those, com uh, of those components is a substantive breach because it breaches the essence of the article in question. So it really is the informational component that triggers the accused ability to make the request to have the rights respected. Oh, sorry, I would like to just ask another question and I'd like to follow up on that. Would you agree that failure to respect the uh, informational component at 530.3 for some accused would be without consequences or would not have significant consequences because uh, that individual for a series of reasons might not have wanted to choose to invoke 530.3. And if that is the case, isn't it necessary to ask what the impact in a given context a breach of 530.3 would be? Answer. So the first answer to the first question, we don't say that in every case it's automatic and that that should necessarily be a retrial. That is not our submission here. Our submission is that the analysis that must be applied here is that if the Crown invokes the curative proviso, then it is possible to proceed with the analysis. And our position is very similar to the position of the Director of Public Prosecutions. So it is not an automatic right. Uh, there has to be an, an analysis question. So that perhaps is where the debate 
is the Court of Appeal recognized that there was a breach of the right. So how does that fit in to the appeal and what is the link with the curative proviso? So who has the onus of proof? So once the error has been established, and I think that it's, it's an error in law, perhaps more than a jurisdictional error, at that point, who has the onus uh, when you're at the stage of analyzing whether the curative proviso applies? Answer, well normally when it comes to a curative proviso, it, the Crown has the burden. And that was recalled recently by this court in Abdullahi in July that specifies that the curative proviso creates a heavy burden for the Crown. And that is precisely why this situation is similar. And this is, again, the same position as the Director of Public Prosecutions. Question. So what you're saying is that when notice of 533 is not given, then there is a loss of jurisdiction. Is that your position? No, we think that it is an error in law and also a loss of jurisdiction. Both apply because of the same basic error of law that sets everything in motion, because it's, it's a mandatory provision. I would like to com complete my question in your answer. So yes, I understand that the burden is for the Crown, but the burden to prove what? Answer, it, the, the burden to prove, well, it depends on the curative proviso that is chosen by the Crown. But here, in this case, the situation was slightly peculiar because the Crown expressly indicated that they were not invoking the curative proviso. So the question of first, okay, so first you have to decide which curative proviso applies because there are two curative provisos under 686.2. So we don't know which one would have been chosen and we don't even know which one was applied by the Court of Appeal. Question, was it possible for the, for the Court of Appeal to act um, Propio motu to apply the curative proviso? Answer, no. And I would like to, to begin with th that submission. But yes, but I'm sorry, we're, we're asking you to go faster than you perhaps intended. Please, go ahead. So today I will be presenting four arguments. And the first, or four submissions, and the first is that the Court of Appeal made an error by applying a curative proviso proprio motu on its own initiative. Secondly, the Court of Appeal made an error by reversing the onus of proof in applying that curative proviso. My third submission is that the Court of Appeal erred by concluding that the informational component was not an essential element of the language rights protection regime. And finally, it's in the context of that third submission that I would, I would answer the submissions of the Crown with regard to how um, subsection 686.1 works. And finally, there was an error by the Court of Appeal when it said that the, uh, the trial Joyce was n did, not, did not have the duty to understand that he had the right to a trial in French. 
So with the first submission, which is that the Court of Appeal erred by applying a curative proviso when the Crown expressly stated that it would not invoke that curative proviso. Would it be possible to invoke it here? No, my submission is that that would not be possible. And the reason for that is, well, first of all, the Crown not only did not mention the curative proviso, the Crown clearly indicated that it was not going to invoke it. The accused, therefore, had, to, had the right to, uh, to rely on that statement by the Crown. So in our submission, it would be a prejudice to the accused for the Crown to change its position here before this court. And I am saying this because one of the main arguments presented by the Crown is why the accused did not present any evidence. Well, the analysis of that question about the response of the accused could change depending on the Crown's position at the Court of Appeal. Question, but at the Court of Appeal, did the appellant address the question of the curative proviso? What I'm saying, I am asking is, well, he had the opportunity uh, to make submissions regarding the prejudice to him? Answer, the appellant's submissions at the Court of Appeal in this regard were, and these are referred to in the, in the uh, Crown's Factum. So the passages where the that state that there is no application of the curative proviso, it's see the decision of the Court of Appeal in uh, in Bolac. So there is a difference between that position, which makes it seem as though the Crown agreed and therefore did not invoke the curative proviso. There's a difference between that and the act of actually invoking the curative proviso, proviso and then presents evidence to meet its burden of proof to apply the curative proviso. Because then the Crown would say, well, yes, I must present evidence. And then, and then the appellate could also present evidence to show prejudice. So it is really a question of how it would apply in this particular case. Question, well, I find that my colleague's question is very relevant and this forces you to ask the following question. Why is there a proprio motu rule? There are two explanations for it. First, as my colleague was implying, it is to avoid prejudice to the accused because the accused does not have the opportunity to present his point of view. So, in the record? Submissions, Mr. Klink, Ms. Klink, made submissions with respect to the curative prov proviso. C'était, la, la question était débattue. Le, le so, so there was no prejudice at first blush, according to that. And then the other reason that the proprio rule exists is to protect the discretionary power of the Crown so that the Crown can make its choices. And there, in this case, the Crown did not invoke the curative proviso, that is true. But 
the Crown organized its pleadings in another way. The Crown said, well, they presented everything with regard to miscarriage of justice. And in this case, we cannot say that either one of the justification that imposes a proprio motu rule applies here. So at the appeal stage, we are blocked and we can only consider how to remedy the error in law and to see whether there was substantive harm or severe miscarriage of justice. So to begin answering your question, I would propose that we turn to tab three of the condensed book. And there we find the, uh, the exchange and the words of the Crown with regard to this issue. It's at line 21, and that is what the Crown stated at the time. And what is clear is the following in English. The Crown is not invoking the curative proviso. My friend, Ms. Klink, et je pose ici pour indiquer, uh, Ms. Klink, c'était l'avocate de l'intervention. And here, Ms. Klink was the uh, intervener's counsel, not the accused's counsel. Klink made submissions with respect to the curative proviso. The curative proviso is not invoked by the Crown with respect to Section 530 of the Code. Et encore en bas, c'est répété. And then further along, that's repeated. Very clear on that not invoking the curative proviso and not suggesting that because the appellant testified comfortably in English, that that somehow obviates the need for any remedy. La raison que je souligne ce passage, c'est que la position du ministère public... I highlighted this passage because the Crown's position could not be clearer, and it's even repeated, so that it is absolutely clear. Yes, but in that same excerpt, Mr. Laxer, at line 3637. So because they said that, does that mean that they can no longer ask this court to apply the curative proviso? Yes, that's right. And for the reason that I explained earlier, because that would create a prejudice for the accused. The submissions that were made regarding the curative proviso at the Court of Appeal level were not with regard to the application for appeal. It was with regard to whether it was possible to invoke it in the context of, of Section 530. So given the Crown's submissions with regard to the the, the evidence that it would have wanted to see from the appellant, that changes the analysis. I'll say it another way. If the Court of Appeal wanted to make sure that the Crown's position was solid, or if there had been a conflict, for example, with what was said um, in person and, what, and the arguments put forth regard to the prejudice, then what it, 
the most it could have done would have been to ask the Crown to confirm its position. And by doing so, the accused or the appellant would have had an opportunity to respond and would be aware of the issues he faced in the criminal context. And this is another essential consideration and one of the reasons why it is, is essential for the Crown to invoke such curative provisos very clearly because it affects the accused's ability to respond and to present evidence to counter the Crown's arguments. I believe the criminal context is very important to understand why this is so important. Question. So the consequence of your opinion is that we do not have the right to rely on the curative provisor in this case, even if we believe that there's an argument that there was no significant prejudice for the appellant. We cannot say so. Answer, precisely so. I say so because this issue of significant prejudice, if the accused knew that he was facing this argument, it's not even clear whether the Crown is raising that proviso today. It's not clear in their factum that it is being invoked before this court. And this further indicates the prejudice that the accused will suffer. There's a passage. I think you're being unfair to your colleague. In his oral submissions, he invokes subsidiarily uh, this curative proviso. It's not his main point. From my understanding of his factum, I understand that he's subsidiarily defending this position by the, the position of the appeal court. And that is why I'm saying that his position is not clear. He's defending the idea that the Court of Appeal could have believed, even though it was clearly indicated that he wasn't invoking it. It's not clear that he is saying we are asking that this be applied. It's actually the first time he's indicating it. Last Friday in these two pages, this case has been on for years. And once again, the possibility of the appellant to submit evidence on this matter is, of course, uh, very late. In the Crown's factum, he says that the curative provisor of 686-1B are not invoked and says that cases like this should be examined in the context of a miscarriage of justice provided for elsewhere. That is their argument. That's their main argument. I do not understand, I don't think well, I would even say that it's not clear that he's asking this court to invoke it. Maybe it's going to be clearer today. But to respond, the question as to whether it causes a prejudice or not, it's clear that it does.
there's another question. It's also not clear which one will be invoked, and there are two. It's for the Crown to demonstrate to the accused which case he should be responding to. The Crown's behavior did not allow the accused to do that. If, perchance, we were to accept that the curative provisor applies in this case, which of the two clauses do you believe is relevant? Is it 3I or 4? According to the appellant, none of them would apply naturally. But to be more precise, in our opinion, what what could apply well, in a case where it's clear that the accused speaks French, there could be no prejudice, it could be part of the analysis. The Crown could show that there's no lack of prejudice because of that. But that is my understanding, and that's also the position of the Director of Criminal Prosecutions. I do not believe so. The Director of Criminal Prosecutions could correct me, but I thought that she was referring to three by saying that the accused doesn't suffer any significant prejudice. In the case you mentioned, a unilingual person who cannot instruct his counsel in the official language in question because the person is unilingual will have to refer to three. There's no significant prejudice. So in spite of a miscarriage of justice, there is no need to order a new trial. That is three. It's not four. Four talks about procedural irregularities that give rise to an error of jurisdiction. So that's why I'm asking, what are you focusing on? I understand that you, you don't want to dance, but on what leg are you dancing? which of the two provisions are relevant. I'm sorry if I poorly explained the intervener's position, but once again, in our opinion, the passage that could apply in a case where the person doesn't speak French is four, small four, where the court says that no prejudice was caused because of the irregularity, but in Bolak, it is stated that a prejudice under 530 doesn't have to do with mere irregularity. So shouldn't we look at three more than four? This analysis arises from Bolak, of course, and it's a significant prejudice. It said that in the context of Bolak, none of them could apply. when one is deprived of their right. But here, the argument from your friends on the other side is that the appellant was not deprived of his right. 530 was not respected, informational component, but his right wasn't violated. Let me I propose to respond to the argument when I move on to our third argument. Let me move there right away. Our third argument today 
is that the Court of Appeal erred by concluding that the informational component was not an important element of the regime for protection of linguistic rights as established by Parliament. Like all linguistic rights, this informational component is also interpreted in light of its objective. In tab 9 of our condensed book, we have the decision of this court in Bolak. And if I could take you to page 124, the pages are to the top of the page. We have paragraph 25. And it's here, the court itself says that the linguistic rights in all cases must be interpreted in light of the objective to be compatible with maintaining and ensuring the development of language communities in Canada. This could explain that linguistic rights need positive measures from the state. And on this point, I would like to take to the court to paragraph 20 of the decisions, which is on page 121. Here, towards the middle of the paragraph, there's a sentence that starts with linguistic rights. The tenth line, the court says that Language rights are not negative rights or passive rights. They can only be enjoyed if the means are provided. This is consistent with the notion favored in the area of international law that the freedom to choose is meaningless in the absence of a duty of the state to take positive steps to implement language guarantees. Um, sorry. Even if we were to accept all these propositions, I would like to know what would you say in such a situation where there's a five where there's a five thirty bridge, five thirty three bridge, but the accused is aware of that law, he himself knows that he has the choice for a trial in one of the official languages. What can be done in such a situation? In our submission, an analogy will be necessary to consider this circumstance. I say so because the right to counsel also includes an informational component and an implementation component. This code concluded on several occasions that a violation of the informational component of 10b constitutes a violation of law. The individual has the right to be informed of his right and where there's a breach, case law doesn't require that the individual demonstrate that they could have asked to speak to a counsel, something they were not aware of already. I know that. That's a very personal decision. If they knew about it, that's not the question here. 
he knows his right but does not ask for a trial to be conducted in the other language. What do we do in that case? In the context of 10b, the analysis is that the onus is on the Crown to demonstrate that. That means that if the accused demonstrates that the right, his rights were violated under 10b, if the Crown wants to justify his position to say that that violation has no consequence, then the onus is now on the Crown to do so. That is how it works under 10b. Of course, some accused who are arrested already know that they are entitled to speak to counsel. The onus is not on them. It's not, the onus is not on them on all cases under 10b. So that's not how the law works in this context, we think. So it's the Crown under 10b that should demonstrate that the accused needs a counsel. How should they do so? That will depend on the individual circumstances of the accused. But of course, let's say that someone is arrested, the person is a lawyer, I can imagine where they would say this person knew, so the impact on that person is different. But there's something else I'd like to mention. Section 530 and the informational component in particular, the objective is not only to make sure that the person understands their rights, but the person should receive the invitation from a judge at the very beginning of the process. Once the person receives an invitation from the judge, they should invoke that right. So that's an important part when we talk about linguistic rights. The court should demonstrate at the very beginning of each case that the person be invited. Once the person is invited, they be encouraged to invoke their rights because of the dangers involved. Question you are you are no doubt right. It's the error of law that is taken for granted here. The problem is the consequence of that error. To go back to Ms. Justice Martin's uh, question, which I found a good one, our court in Masrani said, paragraph 52, that a remedy should not be disproportionate to the scope of the violation of linguistic rights its persistence and impact on the dignity of the person. So to go back to Justice Martin's question, if the evidence on the file is clear that there was no consequence or impact on the dignity of the individual because he clearly knew, maybe he signed a document telling him about his rights, that's one possibility. You are saying that that person may be a lawyer. I'm not sure about that. Even lawyers have the right to choose, so I'm not sure. If the person is unilingual, we have the example from the prosecution's office. There could be a case where somebody is hit with a hammer of 531, and then we ask for a new trial. That will be disproportionate. Coming back to Justice Martin's question, if the evidence on the file shows that he knew he had a choice, is that sufficient to say it's going to be disproportionate to order a new trial? That's the question. Absolutely. There are two points. 
first of all, it would be the burden on the, the burden is on the Crown to demonstrate that the requirements are sufficient. In Masrani, that decision was in a civil context. It was not a criminal case. So there's no precision being made on an issue that we think is important. So determining the, the proportionality. This is not a general item that could be applied on linguistic rights alone, but this is something that should be part of Article 686. So it only comes into play if the Crown invokes the curative privacy, and we, this was not the case here. It's not something that should be done before analysis. It's only after it is raised by the Crown. On this point, in our condensed book, we have the decision of this court in CARM. And there's an excerpt which I find very useful in this case. It's in tab 11 of our condensed book. page 147, sorry, there's paragraph 23. Here, the majority rejects the idea that there's an analysis of prejudice before we get to the stage of the curative provisor. The majority say that they are not aware of any source ex The question is to know whether the error of law caused a prejudice, and if so, how could it be used in the application of the remedial privacy in 6861B? So it's up to the Crown to satisfy the court that despite the error, no substantial wrong or miscarriage of justice had occurred. Concerning the issue of a lawyer, I totally agree that that fact alone was not discharged the crown of its burden. Actually, the legislator doesn't even presume that lawyers understand Section 530. So to presume that the accused will know that, that was not the intention of the legislator. Sorry, you were going a little bit too quickly for me, but Justice Lebel gave a dissenting opinion in Cannes, and he expressed a strong idea, which m might have been at the heart of it, at paragraph 98, with regard to the curative proviso under 6861b, little Roman 4. It is part of a number of provisions that were gradually added to the criminal court. And these provisions aim to prevent verdicts and sentences to be annulled for technical reasons linked to the law that do not have a true impact on the underlying legality or the fairness of the trial. So yes, we know that when it comes to language rights, the fairness of the trial is not at issue. But when it comes to the, the characteristics of the law, yes, that is something that the curative proviso is designed to address. And would you concede 
that like the director of public prostitutions, you don't think that it's an automatic thing that a breach of five subsection 533 does not automatically lead to a retrial. Well, we have a curative proviso. We have a technicality according to the uh, to your, your colleagues' arguments. So why wouldn't uh, Justice Lebez's idea apply here? Answer. Well, first of all, I agree that the curative proviso exists so that there is not automatically a retrial every time. That is clear. But when it comes to the possibility of applying the curative proviso, well, we submitted in our factum. It continues to be our, our position throughout this appeal. The point that we are making, there are a number of them, first is that it is important for the Crown to have been more clear about not invoking the curative proviso. Yes, you said that five times, yes. <laughs> so that is why we did not respond to arguments about the curative proviso. So that's essential. Secondly, the evidence here does not show at all that the appellant knew his rights. It also clearly shows that the accused met the requirements to have access to a trial in French, and that is what the Court of Appeal concluded. The Court of Appeal looked at the case and concluded that it would have been possible for the accused to obtain a trial in French. But in fact, French is his f first language. And so when it comes to prejudice, yes, I th this is a fairly peculiar situation. I'm not even answering an, a submission by the Crown which states, for this reason there is no prejudice. But what about the notice that he signed? You're saying that it has absolutely no worth here? He signed a document that stated his rights under Section 530. And he continued the process and did not invoke his right during the trial. That's on the record. So when you say that there is no evidence, well, that's something. Answer. In that regard, the Court of Appeal said that that evidence did not make it possible for the accused to prove that the accused was aware of his rights. So what I'm saying is that that did not convince the Court of Appeal that the appellant knew his rights. Paragraph 123 of tab 2 of our condensed book. Sorry, it's paragraph 124. And the Court of Appeal explains. To draw any inferences whatsoever as to when and how Mr. Tayo Tompuba first learned of his language rights or why he waited to assert them until after he was convicted. Without more, the record is simply insufficient to support inferences to this effect. Mais ça c'était dit, vous allez me corriger. Ça, à partir de... That was done, and correct me if I'm wrong, based on the error by the Court of Appeal that placed the burden on the accused, and this you mentioned in your factum. So, the Court of Appeal 
had a deforming lens and wanted to have the evidence presented by the accused to prove that he was unaware of his 530 language rights. That he was, uh, that, that he signed the document. Mm -hmm. Alors, le commentaire est, si nous... So, if we go back and say that the Court of Appeal uh, was wrong, and, and of course, this is a hypothetical, but if we follow your position and say that the Court of Appeal made a mistake about the burden, then we would have to re-examine the issue of whether what the accused sign signed was worthless. Answer. So here we're talking about an accused that is not sophisticated. Yes, he's signed it. There is no evidence that he read it line by line and actually read the wording. Well, there's a signature. There, we, do, we do not have that evidence every time that someone signs a document. Do we also have to prove that they read every line? Does the signature work nothing? Because if we're trying here to, to signify a breach of a substantive right by, uh, as, as intended by the legislator, yes, that is my answer. Yes, well, so it's a bit like a waiver in contracts. So even if this person signed the document, you can't really prove that they knew the full intent of the, of the waiver clause. Yes, I'm, I know it's civil and not criminal, but I, I'm trying to draw a parallel. Yes, absolutely. And so even when someone signs a document, it does not promise I read every word. Not at all. I think that it's, it's even stronger in the context of a contract. Yes, but when it comes to signing those documents, uh, can I believe that chronologically it happened before the accused first appearance where the mandatory notice must be given? Am I right in saying that? Yes, absolutely. So let's imagine a situation. And again, the evidence does not establish this here. But imagine that there is someone who thinks that they know the law and thinks that they know uh, Section 530, and there is no mention of it at his first appearance. Will that person think, well, I know more than the judge? Will that person, or will that person say, well, maybe I'm wrong about whether or not that section applies. I thought that the judge had an obligation to ensure that I understand my right, but it wasn't mentioned to me. Well, there, in this imaginary scenario, this is not a, an accused who would be a recent immigrant from Cameroon. It would be a sophisticated accused and an expert in, in language rights, and in the case before us here, there is no evidence of that. So, it really is up to the Crown to show that there is no possibility of prejudice, and that is the burden on the Crown during the analysis in order to apply a curative proviso. If it is invoked, because if it's invoked, then the accused can answer the Crown's submissions with regard to the, 
the definition of the prejudice. Well, when you talk about a, a significant harm, when you repeat a rule, you, you give it a color that it does not have in uh, the statute. We are not saying that the expert, that the accused was an expert in language rights. It, it comes back to, to Justice Martin's question. Like, can we rely on a signature, on a document, to state that he understood what he read? My submission is that is no. Uh, there's um, an obligation on the part of the police to inform uh, someone who is arrested that they have the right to a lawyer. And there is no presumption that the accused or the person who is arrested knows that. And that's a useful example. Because if someone is not an expert, thinks that they know the law, and that law is breached by the, the judge, well, what is that person going to think? Are they going to think that they made a mistake with regard to the law? I submit that that is the case. In the context of Section 10B, it is very common to see on the walls of police stations that you have the right to a lawyer. But that doesn't change the police officer's obligation to give that notice and fulfill the obligations under the informational component of 10B. Question, with regard to language rights, isn't it a category of rights that is different from other rights? And the potential choices for people must be clear with regard to other types of rights and decisions that are made by other people. Answer, absolutely. And this is part of the reason for the curative proviso in this context and for the amendment made by the legislator because the legislator recognized that there are many people throughout Canada who do not know their rights and that is why it is so important to ensure that they are informed of them and that is why it is a mandatory duty that the court breached. Inaudible to the interpreter. Microphone please. Answer. Yes, absolutely. And in a case like that, someone could think that they made a mistake and that they, the law actually doesn't work that way. And it's very important to highlight here the, the objective of the court's invitation and encouragement to avail oneself of that right. It's a person in authority that states you have this right, and it is a right that is respected in our courts, and I invite you to invoke that right. And Mr. Tompuba never received that invitation. I have a, a specific question on the orders requested. And you requested a new preliminary inquiry. Would it be possible for us to provide that preliminary inquiry after the change to the wording of the law? Well, I think that according to the conclusion in Bourlac, a new trial would include all aspects of the legal process, so it would have to start from the beginning. So since the accused had the right to a preliminary inquiry in 2019, then the uh, appellant would have the right to it now. And what authority do you have to make that submission? Answer. In Bolak, paragraph 30. So no, it's not Bolak. 
I think that it is now a change to the law, and it is now no longer possible to order a preliminary inquiry for this offense. Uh, yes, no, yes, you're right. I have no authority with regard to that particular question. Yes, I would, I would like to know why, but what our objective is, is to place the appellant and back in the original situation of 2019. Yes, well, regardless of that, the situation, if we come to the conclusion that there has been a breach with regard to the duty to harm the accused and then he is put back in the exact same position he was before this, what happens? Well, that, for that, uh, we rely on uh, paragraph 30 of Bolak. I would now like to advance my fourth submission with regards to the trial judge. So with regard to its discussion of the applicable law, the Court of Appeal recognized that the trial judges have a duty with regard to the language rights of an accused. But that is in paragraph 50 of the decision. And I would like to highlight a particular passage very quickly, which is at tab two of our condensed book, page 22. The Court of Appeal adopts uh, the conclusions of this uh, court in Masrani and indicates... The court must have no doubt before concluding that the rights in question were properly exercised and rejecting an allegation that they have been violated, that the person has made a free, informed choice to speak in one official language or the other. However, the Court of Appeal concluded that the trial judge did not have that obligation in this case, and that analysis is at paragraph 128 of the decision, page 46. Ici, la Cour d'appel mentionne Here the Court of Appeal says, Tayo Tampuba was fluent in both official languages and was represented by counsel. In addition, he felt that he could handle matters with the police in English. He had demonstrated an understanding of linguistic nuance and he testified in English without apparent difficulty. In these circumstances, I see no error in the trial judge's failure to inquire of his own motion to whether it was the, in, in the interest of justice to remand Mr. Tayo Tampuba to be tried in the French language. He had no reason to make such inquiries and certainly no duty to do so. That analysis runs counter to this court's analysis in Masrani. This court found a number of breaches of linguistic rights, including the rights of participants that were represented by counsel and who spoke both official languages. At tab six of our condensed book, we have excerpts of Masrani at page 82. The first full sentence at page 82 in paragraph three, that says that while it is true that lawyers have a role to play in this regard in accordance with their ethical duties, 
a lawyer's failure to intervene does not release a judge from his or her duties. When language rights are violated, the appropriate remedy will generally be to order a new hearing. I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but there is a technical problem remotely, apparently. So we will take a 10-minute pause to correct the situation, and we will come back, and you're at, you have 6 minutes and 12 seconds left. Let's take a 10-minute break. Thank you. Please be seated. Alors, est-ce que Madame la Juge Justice Obensawin, can you hear us? Yes. I understand that you have questions for Mr. Laxter. I had a question, yes. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? My colleagues asked some questions about the absence of evidence from the appellant on this case. Let me take you to paragraph 52 of Maserani, which talks about the breach that could be raised for purely strategic reasons, particularly when a party was indifferent in court. My question is, in this case, there seems to be lack of evidence. Would that apply here? Inaudible for the interpreter. There's no evidence that it's the case here. That's the case here by Mr. Tayo Tom Popa. Uh, what obtains in the trial demonstrates this fact. The testimony, that's another part that is very important. And this is where there is a conflict that obliged the trial judge to make sure that any doubt was eliminated, to use the language in Marjorani, to eliminate any doubt that the accused understood his language rights. I say that because of the following indicia. First of all, Mr. Tayo Tompuba testified during his trial in English. Of course, his trial was in English. He testified specifically that he had difficulty understanding the lawyer he spoke with after his arrest, which means he misunderstood because the lawyer spoke to him in English. And he clearly explained this during his testimony that he would have preferred a lawyer who spoke French. There is a striking conflict that should have been obvious to the trial judge. The accused explained that he would have preferred to speak with a f lawyer in French, and he said so while being, being put questions in English. 
An excerpt of this testimony is in chapter 4 of our condensed book. I don't want to go there right now because of the time we have left. But what strikes me from this exchange is that when he tried to speak about that, the trial church had difficulty understanding him. He was interrupted several times to be asked to repeat himself à plusieurs reprises. on several occasions. The transcript of his testimony reveals 69 portions that are written or described as indiscernible with an accent in English. Furthermore, and once again, this is something in his testimony, Mr. Tayo Chompuba told the court that he was an immigrant from Cameroon. He was 24 at the time of his trial. And this was his first interaction with the police in a criminal case. In the Masrani case, the, there was a breach against a society represented by lawyers in a civil case against a company. This was a sophisticated party that was often involved in litigation. In a criminal context, it is even more important for linguistic rights to be protected by judges. The freedom of the accused is at play, and in this case, it is particularly urgent for the judge to play his role to protect language rights and, in the words of Mazarini, to eliminate any doubt that the accused uh, understand them. That is part of the proviso of 530 discussed by this court in the Bolag ruling in paragraph 56. In Bolag, I see that your time is running. I would like us to look at inferences because in criminal cases, that's what courts usually do. In the Bolag decision, in a slightly different context, we are talking, I believe, in paragraph 37 and 38 of the fact that the judge must factor, take into account several factors during the trial and ask questions as to when the accused was made aware of his right. Did he re waive that right? So I think that the scope is large enough to take into account all factors. Do you agree with this approach proposed by Judge Basteraj here? We think there's a different and important distinction to be made between Bolak's analysis and the one we're proposing in this case. In Bolak, the issue was a late request. That was the analysis. But in our opinion, the third paragraph, the information informational components of 530 and all paragraphs of section 530 should be read together and interpreted in light of the legislature's objective. When parliament discusses a late request in the fourth paragraph of section 530, there's a presumption that courts have respected their obligations when it comes to the informational component. 
the obligation of the accused to ask for a trial in French cannot be triggered. Only, it can only be done after the court's obligation. So this brings us back to 10b. The accused in this context has the right, or rather the duty, to request to speak to a lawyer diligently. This due diligence only comes in after the state has carried out its informational duty. So all the factors the court should consider when the trial judge receives a request, a late request, it only applies when the 533 opinion is given, it's given, the accused doesn't react right away but decides to make a choice later and that's when the, the factors come in. It's interesting, paragraph 37, where Judge Basteras discusses those factors, is exactly in that paragraph that he indicate that we see the doubtful value of the paragraph. Unfortunately, your time is up. Thank you, counsel. Miss Isabel Harty. Mr. Chief Justice, Justices, the Official Languages Commissioner says that the full realization of the rights offered by Section 530 of the Criminal Code depends on an effective remedy when violated by judges who were designated by the legislator as having the responsibility to ensure implementation of that right. The Commissioner says today that the statement history and the objective of paragraph 530 should appear, should be at the center of the analysis of the appropriate remedy and application of the curative provisors of the code. According to the commissioner, paragraph 530 creates a language right which is on the one hand fundamental and substantial and not a procedural right that could be avoided. On the other hand, it distinguishes it from the right that is provided by the first paragraph of section 530. This interpretation confirms that the violation of 533 could be an error that uh, justifies a new trial without any additional violation of section 531. If the accused wasn't aware, without any evidence given that he wasn't aware of a right and without any evidence in every case, an effective remedy is one that denounces and dissuades any lack of justification by the judges. What concerns the statement 533 requires that the the judges should ensure that the accused be informed of their right for a trial in the language of, a cho of his choice, but also be informed of the deadlines for making that request. And since this obligation lies on the judge, ultimately, it's only logical to require that it be the accused, the accused it, the accused cannot be requested to provide the evidence 
for not submitting the request in time, whereas he wasn't aware of it. So the remedy should not be distinguished from the right. When we look at the history of 530, it supports this interpretation. Since it's the obligation of the judge to come up with this for all accused, the language rights of accused should be implemented. The key question, therefore, cannot be, as the IP court stated, if the accused knew its rights. The purpose of subsection 533 is to ensure equal access to the courts for official language minority persons so that they can preserve their cultural identity. Ms. Hardy, may I? May I ask a question? Would you accept that there could be cases in which, despite a violation of subsection 533, the Crown could show that there was no substantial harm and therefore a retrial is not necessary? Would you allow that? Answer, yes, absolutely. A new trial is not automatic. It's a question of the burden of proof. The Crown has to invoke the curative proviso uh, and just show that there has been no significant harm but it will only happen in exceptional circumstances because the purpose of the law is to protect a choice, a free and informed choice regarding the uh, trial language for the accused. And it must be a trial language that is truly chosen by the accused. And when the judge does not open that door, as he is bound to do under subsection 533, the accused must not be penalized for not doing it himself or herself in an intimidating context uh, that also has a significant power imbalance. That is why subsection 533 uh, is, uh, shows the principles in the Official Languages Act because it is necessary for the linguistic minority to not only be informed of its rights but also be able to exercise those rights regardless of whether they know those rights or not. So the curative proviso would only be uh, applied in exceptional circumstances and not solely because of a breach of subsection 533. Thank you very much. Shannon Gunn Emery. Thank you. Let us first talk about the onus of proof. The Court of Appeal stated that an assertion of, by the accused of an official language is a, is a precursor, a necessary precursor to the application of 533. But in fact, and it is triggered when the accused is in court for the first time. So th in th this means that the first appearance and not the first time that the that proceedings take place. It really is when the accused personally is presented in front of a judge. That is when it is up to the court to ensure that the accused knows the two very important things. And I won't repeat them because I only have five minutes. So to state that the accused could have obtained the information from other sources, uh, well, it, regardless of that, it is up to the judge to ensure that the accused is fully informed of his or her rights. 
subsections 531 and 2 specify what the court must do if uh, the accused makes a request. But when you look at everything together very carefully, you can see that there is no onus on the accused to prove anything at all in order to be able to invoke his or her rights. There's also uh, the fact that the duty on the judge imposed by uh, Section 530 is a continuous obligation. Section 530 is a very broad and it involves all of the judges involved in a proceeding. 530 subsection 3 is for the judge present when the accused appears in court for the first time. 530 subsection 1 means that it cannot be any later than the appearance at which the date of the trial is set. But it is possible for a criminal case to have proceedings at the, in the court two or three times before the actual trial takes place. So it, when it comes to stating that it, the point in this criminal proceeding was a very late time to invoke language rights, it is a, a matter of, of, of the context here. So when it comes to the justice or the judge that is under the obligation to infirm, inform the accused of his or her rights, it is a first appearance or earlier or later all because all judges must be vigilant when it comes to ensuring that the accused can invoke their rights. Finally, five, the rights under Section 530 of the Criminal Code are quasi-constitutional rights and therefore any remedy must be quasi-constitutional as well. And when you look at the curative proviso for 686.1, a Court of Appeal can, can ask for a, a, or can apply a curative proviso uh, unless there is a miscarriage of justice. And here uh, we know that 530 subsection 4 could be applied if there is miscarriage of justice. In that case the court would uh, evaluate the extent of uh, the uh, of the breach given the quasi-constitutional nature of the right and then see what impact that has on the ruling against the accused. In conclusion, Mr. Tom Pupa's fluency in English and the late date at which he invoked his rights may be questions for the court. But the real question that should have been asked is why did the trial judge say nothing? Why is it that at each time Mr. Tom Pupa appeared in court, there was no mention of his language rights. The lawyer didn't say anything, the judge didn't say it, and so why during the trial when language issues were obvious, no one in the court with legal training said anything? So that perhaps shows that there is a harmful silence that does not serve the requirements of 530 and we see that too often in our courts and we are asking this court to remedy that situation. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to remind everyone that it is not up to interveners to discuss the merit of cases. Paul Levey. Yes, uh, justices.
Good day. When a judge is not informed and accused of his or her rights under subsection 533 of the Criminal Code, it is a violation of the accused's rights and therefore it is the trial judge who committed an error in law. And in my submission, it is important to indicate that the obligation to inform is imposed on the judge and therefore if the judge does not fulfill that duty and does not inform the accused of his or her rights, then there can be an appeal under 686 subsection 1A little Roman 2 and that is sufficient on the part of the accused. In the time that I have left, I would like to make an apt analogy which is that of section 10B of the Charter. and also to discuss how to approach the situation if uh, the court finds that the curative proviso does indeed apply. So in the context of Section 10B of the Charter, the duty to inform is not dealt with differently from the obligation to enforce. Those uh, uh, obligations are not dissociated from them the underlying rights and this court has recognized a number of times that both obligations are integral to the protection of the underlying rights, the right to have the assistance of, of, a, of counsel and to not self-incriminate. And these are rights of the accused that can lead to a remedy under Section 24 of the Charter. We submit that there is no valid reason for which the information, the obligation to inform under subsection 533 should be treated differently. Like the informational component of section 10B, that under section, subsection 533 is essential. It is not possible for an accused to exercise a substantive right that he or she does not know about. And the right to a trial in the official language of his or her choice and the uh, informational component related to that right are inextricably linked. I would now like to address the situation in which the procurative proviso would apply. And I would state that if you allow the submission that the violation of the right under subsection 533 is a substantive right, and then it would be subsection 686.1b little Roman 3 that would apply. The, the case law is well established. There is no legal basis or reason of principle that would justify the conclusion that the burden would not be on the Crown in that case. The uh, difficulties that uh, the Crown might face in certain circumstances does not justify a reversal of the onus of proof. Uh, there's Bartle in which practical difficulties of that nature might have been encountered and this court clearly confirmed that at the second step of analysis of paragraph 24.2 or subsection 24.2 that the Crown has the ultimate burden, the burden of persuasion 
uh, to show that the, there would be no different outcome in the event that the accused rights under 10b had been violated. The, Subsection 24.2 of the Charter, in that case, accused do not have the duty of proving that they would not have asked for the assistance of counsel. So here, the circumstances in which a, an accused would not have acted differently, that is evidence that the Crown must present. And if there is presentation of that evidence, then it is up to the accused to counter it. And this analogy and analysis applies directly to subsection 533 of the Criminal Code. That is what we submit, and according to us, that is the approach that the Court should take. Uh, those are my submissions. I have 10 seconds left. Chief Justice, thank you. The Court will take a 10-minute recess. Please be seated. Ms. Banturakis. That the fundamental role of 530 when it comes to the primordial role of language rights is not challenged in this case that the learnings from Bolak many years ago are not in dispute and that the justice of the peace in this case should have made sure that the appellant was informed of his right as suggested by paragraph 533 of the criminal code. All these are not in dispute. The problem is shown as follows. When was he informed of his right? And you must have observed that I'm using the words of the Bolak decision. Perfect. I am sorry to interrupt you right away. Language rights are excessively important. These are unique mm -hmm. rights. I think that what we should avoid is that a situation where accused instrumentalize this in, with the pretext of exercising their language rights. I think that's the issue. In our case, I look forward to hearing you state the reasons why this case could be one of instrumentalization. It's true, Chief Justice. If language rights are allowed to be instrumentalized this way, this will not be valuing them, but trivializing them, and that's the concern. It's a legitimate concern. It's present in this case, 
and according to the respondent it's something that the court should watch out against I would also like to clearly state that if there had been admissible and accepted evidence after reading the case or after presentation of new evidence provided during the appeal demonstrating that the appellant was not aware of his right during the trial proceedings we will not be before you today so what do let me ask a question uh, don't draw any inference from that the argument presented by your learned friend that the crown did not want to invoke the curative pro proviso and your friend on the other side says that it deprives the accused of a right how would the accused be able to present evidence if the director of prosecutions was saying that they were not going to invoke the curative proviso let me address this issue and some of the other questions that we raised about the curative proviso and I will do so right away when it comes to prejudice uh, Justice Koche according to the respondent the notion that the appellant was prejudiced as described by my learned friend cannot be retained the main argument as presented in the appeal court was that the case was not enough the evidence was not enough to arrive at the conclusion that the appellant had been deprived of his right to a trial in the official language of his choice the lack of new evidence insufficient evidence were the main elements in the respondents arguments at the appeal court it was in the brief that was filed before the case and my learned friends included them in the appeal case here so you have it the notion that the appellant was deprived of the opportunity to provide new evidence addressing the issue of the time when he was informed of his right whether or not he would have chosen a French language that was not accepted that was the central issue at the appeal court so who lies on who had the burden of presenting the evidence according to the respondent it was on the appellant and the reason is that ultimately he was saying in the appeal that he had been deprived of justice in Canada in the official language of his choice and that question cannot be addressed only by looking at paragraph 530 of the code why the reason is that according to Bolak according to the respondent the Bolak decision indicates that the facts are relevant when the law contemplated in 530 is invoked late in Bolak when 531 is invoked late but the argument made by your colleague is that those factors in the court should be taken into account and they are triggered only when 533 has been applied I agree that there's a distinction between the question that was before the court in Bolag and the problem here but according to the respondent the reasoning in Bolag should apply in this case and let me explain why but before that I would like to conclude on some issues 
before I discuss the Bolak uh, decision, I would like to respond to the argument made by my learned friend saying that the Crown is now in a position where they cannot invoke the curative provisor or that the Crown did not invoke the curative provisor before this court. In our opinion, there's no rule that states that the Crown cannot invoke the curative provisor before this court, and we did so not only during the submissions that were sent last week, but in our factum, in paragraph 7 of the respondent's brief, we say that it's a subsidiary argument, but it's still an argument. If the court finds that the error made by the provincial court in light of 530 is in itself a mistake, an error in law that could undermine the court, the case in superior court, it's a case where the curative proviso could be applied. And this argument is developed in paragraph 112 to 120 of the respondent's factum. I don't want to take you there. That's your subsidiary argument because in paragraph 6, you are saying that the curative proviso should not be at stake here. That's your argument. The main argument is that the proviso should not be at stake here. However, the subsidiary argument that we are presenting and pre continue to present is that if the court arrives at a contrary conclusion that the error by the justice of, of the peace could lead to a miscarriage of justice, according to 681A2, then we could invoke the curative proviso in that case. Now, with those comments being made, I will now move now to your question, Justice Cote, as to why the Bolag decision could be applied here as to when the appellant learned about their rights. I have three reasons why the Bolag decision, in spite of the distinctions, let me interrupt you. It's not polite. You'll come back to my colleague's question later. But to conclude on the curative proviso, your colleague or your learned friend said more than that. He says that the Court of Appeal erred while applying the curative proviso and that in the appeal court, the Crown clearly pleaded that they were not invoking the curative proviso. So do you have not responded to your colleague's argument. I'm sorry, dear colleagues. I just wanted uh, this point to be clarified. The, response, uh, the respondent's response is that the arguments that were presented by the respondent in the Court of Appeal as to the absence of evidence, as to the insufficient evidence, as to the fact that the appellant had not demonstrated what they, they were supposed to demonstrate, that they had been deprived of a trial in the language of their choice. By its very essence, it's the same question on which the case was decided by the appeal court. That is, the Court of Appeal said, we don't have evidence we do not have a file or facts that allow us to find that this person was deprived of having 
a trial in the official language of his choice. So we are applying the curative proviso, the very essence of the argument used by the Crown. It was consistent with the Court of Appeals reasoning. I'm sorry. The Court of Appeals says that there was a violation of the right to choose the language. But there was a breach. The, the person did not have the opportunity to exercise his right to choose one of the official languages. Chief Justice, I think that the Court of Appeal found that there was a breach of paragraph 533, but the impact on the trial was not established. So there was no sufficient facts to conclude that the appellant had been deprived of a trial in his official language. He said the appellant was bilingual, could have chosen a trial in any of the two languages, was not aware when, was, when he was informed. So in my opinion, the Court of Appeals discussion as to the fact that, and I'm trying to use the words of the Court of Appeal, that there was no substantial violation when it comes to a trial in the official language of the choice. So though there was a 533 breach, the Court of Appeal was of the opinion that the, the person had not been deprived of his right to have a trial in the official language of their choice. I have difficulty following your argument. If everyone were to conclude that the accused had not been informed of his right to have a trial in are we coming back to the substantial right automatically? My answer to that is no, because according to the Court of Appeal, I'll tr try to convince you that according to the Bolak decision, the matter of the knowledge of law has a factual dimension to which the breach of 530 doesn't respond entirely. So 530 par paragraph three was amended to say that judges must inform all accused whether or not they are represented by a counsel. And you said that you were not challenging the protection of language rights, minority language rights in the country. So if you are saying that 533 doesn't apply on the right of someone to have a trial in the official language of their choice, I have difficulty following you there, following your argument. I'm not saying that the 530 violation has no impact, that it's not an important provision or a mandatory one. The issue is, according to the respondent, when this violation is raised for the first time on appeal and we don't have enough uh, facts, to help determine and understand whether the appellant was indeed deprived of his right to be tried in the official language of their choice because it's possible that he could have chosen a trial in English, it's possible. It's possible that he chose a trial in English, we just do not know. That's the question. When it's raised at the first, for the first time on appeal, those facts are very important in the analysis. Now, if the 530 
three violation had been raised at another time, maybe the considerations will have been different. For example, if the appellant knows about their right during at the trial stage and demands it at the right time, uh, then there's no opinion on 533 and learns about it in other ways that he's aware of that right and invokes it, makes a request outside the deadline to have a trial in the official languages of their choice and at that time indicates that he had not been informed as required by paragraph 3. What happens according to Engra in the Quebec Court of Appeal, the person would at that time benefit from a stronger presumption in favor of his request by virtue of 5.30. Maybe the trial that has already been set will be postponed or adjourned and then no measures will be taken pursuant to 5.31 of the code. So depending on the time and depending on the circumstances, the violations of 5.30 the 5.30 may be different. Let me be clear. There will be some circumstances, according to the respondent, where the violation alone for paragraph 3 would lead the court to conclude that there was a violation of a right to have a trial in one's official language of choice. As we have examples in our factum, there's the case of Mr. Oelo. It's a case that's cited. It's not in my condensed book. I apologize for that. But in uh, Mr. Coelho's case, he was an accused who did not have representation of counsel and did not receive the notice uh, under the subsection 3 of section 530 and was having difficulty with the language of the trial and seemed to be a, a person uh, who it was not reasonable to assume uh, who would have wanted a trial in the other official language. And in that particular case, the court concluded that the violation of a subsection 3 had a real impact and therefore uh, the retrial was ordered. Sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, Chief Justice, but according to the respondent, there's a big difference between that case and this case. I understand that the appellant has made submissions that suggest that the appellant had difficulties with the language at trial. Uh, that is a submission that the respondent does not think should be accepted. The trial judge made findings of fact with regard to the linguistic ability of the appellant. The appellant testified that he spoke English with his lawyer and when his lawyer invited him to state that they could speak French together, the appellant denied it. So the judge had before him an accused who was instructing his counsel in English and there uh, he met the criteria in Borlaq or the test in Borlaq to request a trial in English. So according to the respondent what the appellant is asking you to do is to, uh, to take a different view of the record from the trial judge's view. So the circumstances are very different from, than from the um, case in Oello. And there in Oello, 
we there was no written advice or notice given to the accused and there was in this case here so really it is a very thorny situation because according to the respondent this is a very unusual case because these are circumstances in which there is an appellant who received written notice an appellant who is bilingual and who has the right to have a trial either in English or in French but the record does not give us the answers we need to be able to conclude whether or not he was deprived of his right question so with regard to analogies you gave an analogy I will give you another one what about an analogy of instrumentalizing a section 530 someone who does not at all speak French has no idea but decides after being found guilty uh, decides to use the fact that he was not told that he could have a, court, a trial in the official language of his choice so in that case even if there had been a violation of subsection 533 the court would have been able to set aside that argument but when you made your analogy earlier it seems that the record shows that uh, this person is from Cameroon he's francophone but he does speak English but you know that when people are not perfectly bilingual it is it can be difficult to get the nuances particularly in in cr criminal proceedings and there was also in the record uh, proof that there was a lack of understanding by the judge and the accused don't you think that that's significant answer I do not think that the evidence shows that there were difficulties uh, for the judge or the accused to understand each other I think that when it comes to the voir dire at that point uh, it was necessary for the judge to ask the appellant to repeat himself two or three times my friend stated that there were indications in the trial transcript that the appellant had an accent we do not deny that but that does not lead to the conclusions particularly when the judge had findings of facts to the contrary that there was a lack of understanding in fact the judge the trial judge and I'll use the English word because that's what the judge said that he was an articulate witness and that his English was excellent so the facts and the record do not support the submission that there were problems of, of understanding between the, the judge and the accused yes but it's possible to be very articulate in English but that does not mean that there that that does not counter the fundamental right to have a trial in French and if in this case the appellant was not aware of his right and chose a, a trial in French well then he would require a new trial there's no question of that if he had not been aware and had chosen a trial in French he would not have gotten access to a trial in the official language of his choice so here the the law states that judges must inform all accused whether or not they're aware of their rights that is the duty of the judge and in your submissions you seem to be placing the burden to prove uh, that a prejudice has occurred on the accused because he could have uh, had access to a trial in French but was denied it because he spoke English so we submit that the burden uh, to show at the appeal stage because it was only presented at the appeal 
it is on the appellant to to state when he was made aware of his right we do not know what that was when that was we do not know whether he would have chosen to have a trial in english yes but it is fairly clear i it seems to me and i'm reading here the transcript from the voisier proceedings he was asked a couple of times and that he said that he did not understand the word statement when he talked about getting the information from counsel. And then if you go further in the transcript, I'll find it here. He said that he asked uh, for, uh, for a French-speaking lawyer from legal aid. And this is a request that he had made. So if we look at the transcript of the Voir proceedings, there are a number of times when it is clear that he did not understand exactly what was going on. Isn't that evidence that we can look at and rely on to show that he really would have chosen to have a trial in French? Answer. It is the respondent's submission that that is not the case because I had indicated earlier the judge at the trial judge made the factual findings that do not uh, correspond or are not consistent with the reading of the transcript that you just presented. So Justice Abonswin, that statement by the accused was provided in a broader context and the broader context was or included, for example, the fact that the appellant was being represented by a counsel who was aware of the fact that his client spoke French and stated it. The accused testified in English without asking for interpretation or without asking to speak French, and that's what makes this case different from Masrani. The appellant also stated under cross-examination that, and I understand that, that, that we can't put too much weight on those factors, but knowing that it's a, a bilingual country, that um, there's official bilingualism, and that a number of services can be requested in French, he also agreed after the Crown uh, asked the question that his trial was taking place in English. The Crown, during its submissions on the voir stated he's having a trial in English. And uh, the defense counsel said nothing. So that is the broader context. The judge had before him someone according to, who, according to his own testimony, was instructing his counsel in French and lived uh, in French for the most part. And we know that the choice of language does not depend on the mother tongue, or the language in which one feels the most comfortable testifying. So the issue here for this court is that we now know that for a new trial, there the appellant is telling us that he would want a trial in French, but we do not know whether he had in fact chosen a trial. Well, perhaps this can be settled with regard to the onus and the way things work because you concede that there has been an error of law under subsection 530.3. You agree with that. 
we do not know what choice the appellant would have made if he had been properly informed. We do not know. And we know, as the Chief Justice said, that we must beware of reading uh, section, subsection 533 in a way that supposes that no one would ever take advantage of it uh, to be able uh, to instrumentalize it. So perhaps what we could do as a working hypothesis that we consider that 530.3 has been violated when there is an accused who can instruct a counsel in another official language because there's an inference or a presumption there that he would have made that choice and now it is up to you to prove that he did not suffer significant, a significant wrong according to 686.1b3 or that there was not a severe miscarriage of justice by making the submissions that you just made and saying, well, there was no uh, prejudice to the accused, he was aware of his rights, he, he acted in f with full knowledge of the situation. That's fine. But the, those submissions must be made at the right time while protecting the language rights of, of the person in question. And we know that, that only God knows what is in someone's conscience. Who knows what he would have done at the time? So let's put this, the chances on his side. It's a fundamental right. It is a right that has been recognized by this court in Borlac. And now y you have the burden of undoing the presumption or the reasonable inference, perhaps, that he would have made that choice. There are elements on the record. We don't know what he would have chosen, but there are elements on the record. Uh, my colleague Justice Abomswin mentioned some of them. There are others. Perhaps he would have made the choice if he knew at the time that he, that he had the choice and that the ball is in your court. What would you say to that? So I have two answers for you, Justice Kazerer. And the first has to do with the mechanism that exists at the appeal level to meet that burden. And in a number of cases, the Crown will not be able to provide any evidence and that, therefore, opens the door to instrumentalizing the right under the relevant subsection. Because if the Crown cannot adduce evidence that the appellant was aware of his right and would not have chosen differently, and then we are in a position where uh, the remedy of a new trial could be granted to an appellant who chose, knowing full well, to have a trial in the other official language and there would be no way of contradicting them. And then the second point that I'd like to make in response to your questions has to do with the purpose of Section 530 as discussed in Bolak. 
the factors that were taken into consideration in Bourlac, and I'll come back to why those factors should be applied here. The factors that were set out in the Bourlac decision with regard to the appellant's knowledge of his rights are factors that were identified in light of the purpose of Section 530. They are not factors uh, that are mm, inconsistent with that right. And so it's the knowledge of the accused of his or her right, when they were informed, and the reasons for the delay. Why are those relevant? Because this court stated in Bolak that Section 530 aims uh, to encourage uh, the uh, timely claiming of that right and it is therefore logical because claiming the right uh, early in the process will ensure that the right is enforced and ensure that the linguistic and cultural identity of the accused is respected because the that right is invoked uh, and this is in the course of a criminal court, there are other elements that must be taken into account. That is why the first question is focused on the accused's knowledge of his or awareness of his right. Now, if the accused who was not given the notice under subsection 3 is informed of his right through other means, and we have in our factum other examples of cases where the accused was not given the notice uh, pursuant to subsection 3 and found out about it in another way. So if the accused does that, finds out about his or her right on, by other means, then the accused will be faced with a very difficult situation according to the respondent because they will have to assert his right in a timely manner as stated in 530.3 and as this court stated in the bulletin. So the right has to be asserted in a timely manner which also means that there could be a situation in which the accused renounces to a guaranteed right of appeal. Question. So when Bolak states that a uh, that the right must be invoked in a timely manner, that supposes that they know the accused knows that they have that choice, and then subsection 533 must be informed not only of the existence of the right but also of the deadlines by which that right must be invoked. So, so it's possible that a that an accused would know that they have the right but has no idea of when it must be declared, and that doesn't meet the intent of Parliament in creating the statute. My submission is not that the judge should be discharged of his or her duty, but I think that what, well, I know that what the respondent is saying here is that if the accused avails him or herself of her right or seeks to when they find out about it, well then it can be taken into account, but there should be an even stronger presumption in the accused's favor with regard to invoking his or her rights under Section 530, Subsection 3. So according to the respondent, it is not consistent with Bourlac to state that the accused can be encouraged not to assert his or her right in a timely matter, and if they 
if the accused has not received the notice under subsection 3 and they find out about the right if through other means and would like to have a trial in the, minor, in the, the minority language, it will be very difficult for the accused to say, okay, I, 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 I renounce a guaranteed appeal, I will assert my right, I will have my trial in French, and if I am found guilty, then I will not have a guaranteed right of appeal. So I think that that puts defense lawyers in a very difficult situation when it comes to a breach of subsection 533, because we know that uh, lawyers have an ethical obligation with regard to their client's linguistic rights or language rights. But what happens when asserting that right also means that their client has to give up a guaranteed course of appeal in the event that they are found guilty. That result, according to the respondent, is not consistent with the uh, intent of subsection 533, nor with the principles in BOLAC. So I would like to ask a question, because I find that there was a bit of a problem at the foundations of your submissions. You said that the right to have a trial in the official language of one's choice is absolute or discretionary according to the time at which that right is invoked. So I understand uh, that we are asking the question in the context of Section 530. So is it the appellant? who has the onus of proof specifically when the submissions are being presented at appeal only. That is the case here. But if the reason the right is only evoked in appe on appeal is because the accused did not know before because there's a violation of 530, that creates a major problem with regard to the administration of justice in my mind because why do the rules change in that case? The accused lost the absolute right that he had if the, the officers of the justice system had fulfilled their function. So isn't it unfair to impose a different kind of burden of proof on someone who did not have the opportunity to be notified of his legal rights. Madame la juge Martin, c'est simple. Justice Martins, my answer is that according to the respondent, there is a factual element as to know whether or not he was deprived of his absolute right. We do not know. But it is obvious that that right was lost because he has a right. When he has a right, he can exercise that right. When he knows about the right, he can use it for personal reasons. If he wasn't informed as per 533, according to the respondent, it is possible that the appellant was aware of his right. And if he knew about his right at the right time, 
within the time limits provided for by law, maybe through a discussion with his counsel. That is a factual matter. Yes, it is a fact. But I would like to know why put the burden of proof on the accused. The reason why the accused should bear the burden is that, first of all, we are dealing with the right invoked for the very first time on appeal. So the case as it is exists. In the context of a broader jurisprudence, when a right is invoked for the first time at the appeal stage, it is not strange that uh, the accused who invokes the right is the one that bears the burden. And secondly, because the information that is essential to know whether, in fact, the right to have access to justice in the language of his choice in Canada was violated are known only by the appellant. Is the appellant who knows when he was informed of the right. Is the appellant who knows why he requested that right late. Is the appellant who knows the language that would have been chosen in the Bullock decision. I know that it was a trial level, but in the Bullock ruling, the court clearly indicated that this is information that should be provided by the accused. So there's no reason for us to find ourselves in in appeal court and the right is being invoked for the very first time that the burden not be the same. <clears throat> so this is something that is almost inconsistent if there's a, a different burden than one that would have been obtained if the person had raised exercised that right earlier. I'm sorry, there's a great difference here. The trial judge committed an error in law, an error of law by violating 533. This is a significant difference. The informational component is provided for by the legislator to everyone represented or not by counsel so that the request mentioned in 531 because it's at the request of the accused the accused should be aware of the right. It's only logical. On appeal, it is not inconsistent for the, for the accused to think, if I had known, I would have asked for my right. There's no inconsistency here. The problem is that since we do not know what choice he would have made at that time. So then who bears the burden? For you to put it on the appellant, when we know that the judiciary failed in its duty, I wonder whether it is perfectly fair. Maybe one way of making adjustments here is to say we will see whether the Crown can demonstrate that the accused did not suffer any significant prejudice. There's no inconsistency. Justice Kazira, there is 
case law from Ontario and Quebec and I know that the context is uh, also different. This refers to implementation of orders done in light of 530. I'm thinking of the Danigra ruling, which we have in our condensed book. We also have excepts in our condensed book from another case. And these cases teach us that before evaluation of language rights, before such evaluation to lead to a remedy on appeal, even before we look at the curative proviso, before it leads to a remedy on appeal, there should have been a real impact that is significant enough in those circumstances to justify a new trial. According to the respondent, this analysis could apply in this case and ultimately it's the appellant who bears the burden to justify that the prejudice was significant. On looking at 530 and 533-4, is the burden of proof the same and does it lie on the Crown? The ultimate onus at the trial stage looking at the request made in 533 lies on the Crown. There's no question about that. But the Bolak decision has told us that in some circumstances, for example, when the request is made late, there could be variation when, depending on when the right is invoked. And some of that burden may be borne by the appellant or accused who is invoking the right. In the Bolak case, well, the burden will be a lot uh, heavier on the Crown if the information was not provided. When a request is made pursuant to 534, the role of the Crown, let's say there's no dispute as to whether or not the accused speaks the language concerned. The Crown that wants to dispute such a request is to say what are the additional factors, whether there are any barriers that exist in light of the late request. It's not up to the Crown to establish the reasons for the late request. In light of Bolag, this burden for presentation is not necessarily demanding. I'm not saying that it's a very demanding burden that is being imposed, but the burden of presentation for explaining the delay should be borne by the accused, by the appellant. I know that I have only 15 minutes late, uh, left, sorry, and I would like to make some comments on the application of Section 10B that was raised, the corollary that was raised by the appellant, unless I ha you, have, you have questions. I would like to address that issue. One of the interveners placed a lot of emphasis on the fact that there's a parallel to be made, the informational component uh, in light of 10B. According to the respondent, the comparison that the 
appellant is trying to make between 530 and 10b is a false one they're dangerous and if I may I could take a few minutes to talk about the distinctions between the two the differences that exist between the two first of all the court clearly stated in the battle case that where there's a 10b violation the accused has no burden to demonstrate whether or not they could have consulted counsel if they had been advised of their right but in battle the court explained that it adopted that approach in light of the fact that admission of incriminating evidence violates 10b and may undermine the trial and a lot of case law was developed around that issue and according to the respondent that reasoning cannot be applied within the context of 530 and contrary to the situation that arises when 10b is invoked we found ourselves in an appeal like now in a criminal case 10b generally invoked to prevent the crown from producing a trial incriminating evidence the accused has the burden to demonstrate the violation of 10b and also has the secondary burden of demonstrating that admission of evidence will undermine the trust of the justice system and they are not obliged to demonstrate that they consulted a counsel at that time no they don't have to what is important to note is that the link between the violation at issue and the trial is clear the crown is trying to present to the court evidence from the accused that is self-incriminating so the trial could be potentially jeopardized by this self-incriminating evidence and one difference that exists between that context and section 530 is that we find ourselves in an appeal is something I mentioned already we cannot obtain and present evidence that could be relevant concerning the time when the accused learned about his right and what choice he would have made the secondly the comparison that you are being asked to make between 530 and 10b is a false one because the law contemplated in 10b is a right that is given to people who have the limited a right that is restricted because of circumstances where the person is very vulnerable to self-incrimination except from the La France case for example that were included by my learned friend in his condensed book clearly illustrate the vulnerability that arises from the situation where people are deprived and they could be a judicial risk and where the detained may incriminate themselves and I agree that the Bola case showed that we cannot presume that counsel will inform their clients of their language rights but we do not have an accused who is in a vulnerable situation here that is consistent with the situation of someone detained by the state upon arrest
before I move on to the judge's analysis and the subsidiary arguments relating to the implementation of 534, I have one last comment on the curative proviso. A question was put to my learned friend this morning to find out what curative proviso should apply in this case if the if proviso had to be applied. The Crown's position when it comes to what curative proviso should apply is that according to the principles addressed by Justice about in the Tran case in paragraph 18, when the error arises from an error in law, if the curative proviso in 680, it, it's the one in 686-1b, the order was being reserved to irregularities that could lead to a lack of jurisdiction. So if the court were to find that the error made by the justice of the peace could constitute an error of law regarding the judgment by the trial court, looking at 681A2, it, that will be the, it will be the curative proviso of 1B3 that would be factored in. I would like to say something about the curative proviso, and that is the way we guarantee protect ourselves from abuses of language, language rights because that's uh, a major issue. According to the respondent, we should not find ourselves in a situation where an appellant, an accused, may simply, very well knowing their rights, refuse to act and simply wait refuse to assert their rights to try to take advantage of the situation ultimately. That's not why we have language rights. They should be used to, value, they should be valued rather. Looking at the curative proviso, there's an important point we must consider. Normally, we do not talk about submitting new evidence when the Crown talks about the curative proviso because of the types of errors we are talking about. When we talk about errors that fall under 686, 1A2, generally speaking, we look at the reasons for the judgment. The case file at trial level and the Crown presents arguments as to whether the error was insignificant or the evidence overwhelming. So in that case, the error should not lead to a new trial. But this is not a process through which the Crown adduces new evidence. I suppose that the test that should apply is the one that is normally used for adducing new evidence. But this is a very difficult situation. Ultimately, there is no clear mechanism. I know that my learned friends from the prosecution, public prosecution's office, uh, office have made proposals about mechanisms through which 
new evidence could be presented to discharge the burden of proof. But there's no procedure that exists at this time, as far as I know. The idea, for example, that the Crown could force the appellant to provide evidence is an unknown concept. How, why is it impossible to adduce certain evidence if it's invoked on appeal? I have two answers. I said it before, I'll repeat myself. There is no established process. I imagine that we can go by the Palmer ruling and bring in new evidence that way, but this would be something that is new. But do you see what the Office of Public Prosecutions is proposing in paragraph 32? The Crown should be able to produce new evidence, particularly when the file doesn't have adequate evidence to determine whether or not the accused has enough knowledge in the language being used for the trial. Therefore, this follows the logic in the Bola case. It would appear that, to me, that it was possible to adduce new evidence, and it's even desirable because it is a mechanism through which the burden of proof will be respected, the fundamental rights will be respected, and instrumentalization will be referred to may be avoided. So why is that not a solution? According to the respondent, this approach does not take into account the instrumentalization of the law because it does not provide a mechanism that can be used by an accused who is aware of his or her rights and chooses not to assert those rights. Yes, but all abuses can never be eliminated. So by saying that we will set aside people who are not part of an official language minority community that want to invoke a right that is not logically theirs to invoke. That we can use to avoid abuses without enforcing anything, without saying that we need evidence of what exactly the accused would have done. So yes, the state will pay a bit more. There will be more retrials perhaps, but it, the, the objective is to protect the important rights enshrined in Section 530 and the principles set out in the Bolak decision. Answer. Well, when it comes to a new trial, uh, Bolak recognized that uh, the later the right is invoked, the greater the impact on a criminal trial. So there are a number of very specific considerations that come into play for the accused, for the 
um, the witnesses for the allocation of public resources, these are issues that are important for all minority language communities and others. Well, we have to do what Quebec did. Remember the old debate in Quebec where uh, English language litigants are not informed of their linguistic rights? Well, the Dow decision changed the practices and by insisting that that notice is given wall to wall to all accused across Canada and that way later it'll be much difficult to try to get around the rules and to take advantage of a right that cannot logically be invoked and I would add to that by saying that what prevents uh, the uh, Crown to tell the judge at the first appearance of the accused to provide the notice under subsection 533. Yes, we agree that the Crown, the judges, the defense attorneys have obligations in relation to the protection of language rights. And the question ultimately is, well, we have the wording of the law and it must be interpreted in a broad and liberal way. But that obligation was not imposed. Yes, the Crown should keep in mind the language rights of all accused. There's no question about that. But when it comes to imposing a different procedure, I would simply say that we have to act within the letter of the law using an interpretation according to the principles of Bolak. As I know that you don't have very much time left, but you haven't discussed the, the, the substance of the issue for this appellant. So if hypothetically we were to impose the burden of proof and we change what the Court of Appeals said and said, no, actually it's not the accused who has the burden of proof, it's actually the Crown under 686B3, 1B3. Don't you think that the accused deserves to have a new trial? The response to submission is no, and if this Court decides that, well, what can we hang on to to justify your conclusion? Well, you can uh, uh, give weight to the notices that were given. I'm not saying that it is a substitute for the notice uh, foreseen in subsection 533, but on the record we have, if I may if I finish, uh, we have evidence on the record that this appellant received notice by signing documents. And these weren't sort of under mm, underhanded or in five printed. But it was a notice that was a standard notice that was visible and it was immediately above the accused signature. So that is clear evidence. We also have the factual background, but it's, uh, it's proof of knowledge and of understanding. Yes, I would say so. And I think that at the first appearance, the appellant's counsel indicated clearly that he would talk about the the commitment with his client. So we know not only that the documents were received by the accused, but that the his legal counsel talked about them. We don't know what the details of that discussion were. But that's also evidence. And in conclusion, I would simply say that I would also uh, 
uh, use my submissions in response to Justice Abomson's questions because we have here an accused was instructing his lawyer in French and I think that in fact that it was a trial in English and those are elements on the record that would support the respondents submissions uh, thank you if you have no further questions thank you Maître Gobeil. Oui. Ms. Gobeil, yes. Uh, the position of uh, the uh, Director of Public Prosecutions is based on three submissions. One, uh, the judge's breach of, of subsection 533 uh, is a violation of a substantive and jurisdictional right uh, that would lead to a retrial and we have said in our factum that there is a, a an error in the decision on a question of law secondly when the notice about a trial in the language of the accused choice is not followed through on the crown can use the curative proviso under 686-1B, Little Roman 3, with regard to a new trial. And third, it is on the, it is up to the Crown to demonstrate and prove that the breach does not cause a significant harm. So we would like to, to address the applicable burden more specifically. So in our submission, the only burden on the accused in appeal is to establish an error in law according to 686-1A, Little Roman 2. We stated it in our first submission. If there is a, a, a substantive and jurisdictional violation of a right, then we can see that if the accused had been had been informed at trial of his rights, he would have had right, a right to the trial in the official language of his, in, of his choice. So that is not an application of a subsection 534, given the absence of the notice. It is up to the Crown uh, to prove that the absence of notification did not create substantive harm, and, uh, and therefore that the curative uh, uh, proviso does not apply. There are circumstances that show that the lack of notice did not have a, an impact on the accused's right to have a trial in the language of his choice. So, in the record, before the Court of Appeal, if the record does not include any evidence that would let the Court of Appeal know whether there should be a retrial or whether the curative proviso should apply, then the Crown should be given the opportunity to produce new evidence to show uh, that, the, um, that the accused does not know the other official language sufficiently well to be able to avail him or herself of a uh, trial in the other language. So here, with regard to the police officers, use of one or the other official languages and for the accused to say that they did not understand that language, well then there would be a number of elements of evidence that would have to be adduced. So really, here there is no uh, uh, possibility on the part of the Crown to ask the 
uh, accused about their language proficiency outside of court. So there should be an opportunity for the Crown to request evidence. We know that the intervener, the Canadian Bar Association, is stating that there are questions uh, in their factum that there are questions that could be asked by the Crown, should not ask questions that are covered by client solicitor privilege. We do not agree with what the Canadian Bar Association proposes with regard to the language in which a client can give instructions to counsel that, that they are covered by solicitor-client um, privilege. We believe that they are subject to the principles in BOLAC. Ms. Gobey, could I ask you a question? So in order to trigger that burden, you heard all of the submissions so far. So the accused must prove that he did not receive the notice of his right. That's easy. The transcript will show that. I agree. But is it not necessary for the accused to to present an affidavit to the effect that he can instruct a counsel, extract counsel in the other official language so that the Crown can ask questions about that without having to adduce new evidence? Did you think about that or would you prefer to impose nothing on the accused? And you heard your colleague for the Crown here saying that it will be impossible for us to avoid the instru instrumentalization of the right under subsection 533. Uh, yes, I did consider this question at length and really what I have to say is that the burden on the accused is to establish an error in law and we submit that a violation of subsection 530.3 is an error in law under uh, 686 a little Roman 2. So yes, the burden is on the Crown to prove and to persuade the Court of Appeal that no substantial harm arises from the lack of notice of language rights. And if the Chief Justice would allow me to do this because uh, there was a question about the new evidence. Yes, thank you, thank you kindly for the time. So the new evidence to be adduced by the Crown would not be regarding a, an issue resolved at trial, but rather evidence with regard to the validity of the trial itself given the breach of an imperative provision uh, that annuls the trial. I would say that that new evidence could be presented in appeal not according to Palmer, but rather uh, the modified criteria that would be flexible with regard to a failure to meet the obligations with regard to disclosure as set out in Duguay Taifer in paragraphs 76 and 77. Thank you. Thank you. Chief Justice, Justices, solicitor-client privilege and official language rights are both vital aspects of our justice system. Section 530 of the Criminal Code should be applied in a way that protects both. L'Association du Barreau Canadien intervient. The Canadian Bar Association is intervening here to make two points. First, uh, the Canadian Bar Association proposes a framework to apply Section 530 to protect language rights and solicitor-client privilege at the same time. The Canadian Bar Association also highlights the ethical obligations of counsel to protect and promote the language rights of uh, their clients. Framework. 
Section 530 sub 1 gives an accused an absolute right to a trial in their chosen language, provided the accused person applies by the date they appear in court to set a trial date. If an accused person fails to exercise this right in time or at all, the trial judge retains discretion under Section 530 sub 4 to remand the accused to be tried in their official language of choice. Under this subsection, trial judges must conduct a two-part inquiry. First, the trial judge must determine the language of the accused. And second, the trial judge must be satisfied that a remand order would serve the best interests of justice. The CBA's concern is that this two-part inquiry can and sometimes does trench on solicitor-client privilege. Sometimes the threat to privilege is obvious. For example, asking an accused person what their lawyer told them about their language rights creates an obvious risk of eliciting privileged information. But sometimes the threat is less obvious. For example, asking a self-represented accused person about their knowledge of their language rights may elicit privileged information if, unknown to the trial judge, the accused person received summary trial advice before trial. To help trial judges avoid these risks, the CBA proposes a framework for protecting both language rights and privilege. At the first step of the inquiry, the trial judge must determine the language of the accused. At paragraph 15 of my factum, you'll find proposed guidance on how to make this determination without trenching on privilege. In brief, trial judges should make it clear that they do not want to know about any legal advice the accused person may have received. They should ask clear and direct questions in both official languages, and they should avoid any questions that may elicit privileged information. For example, trial judges should avoid questions such as, in what language do you instruct your counsel? Have you discussed your language choice with your counsel? Or why do you want to have a trial in that language? At the second step of the inquiry, the trial judge must be satisfied that a remand order is in the best interests of justice. At paragraph 17 of my factum, you'll find proposed guidance on how to conduct this inquiry without trenching on privilege. For example, trial judges should avoid asking questions such as, did your lawyer tell you about your language rights? Did your lawyer cause any delay in making a section 530 application? Or why did you change lawyers? Finally, the Canadian Bar Association would like to highlight the ethical obligations of counsel to protect and promote language rights, the language rights of their clients. As the court explained in the Bolak decision, language rights are not negative or passive rights. They can only be exercised if the means to do so are provided. And it is essential for those means to be provided to clients. In paragraph 19 of my factum, you will find a summary of the ethical duties of lawyers to protect and promote language rights. And in summary, lawyers must inform their clients of their language rights as early as possible and must not undertake a representation in an official language unless they are able to do so competently. So respecting those ethical obligations are essential to protecting and promoting language rights in Canada. My 
Um, I'm just thinking about, um, obviously uh, we agree with the, uh, the two principles that you, you set up, but I'm thinking about when a judge takes a plea um, in a criminal case. There's usually a set of questions that are, are posed about whether the uh, accused person understands the consequences of what they're doing. And I wonder why a judge wouldn't be able to make comparable type of inquiries without breaching privilege about something as important as language. Well, certainly, the, uh, Justice Martin, I mean, judges can make inquiries into those important matters. The point is that those inquiries must be posed in a limited, circumscribed way so as to avoid trenching on privilege. And so our position is that those inquiries can be made. The key is to ensure that they are made in a way that avoids trenching on privilege. Thank you. Uh, yes. Very briefly, I mean, um, I, I, I take no issue with what you're seeking to achieve, but picking up on the point of my colleague, Justice Martin, if the judge makes amply clear that uh, he or she is not seeking to uh, ask the accused what the lawyer's advice was or what discussions occurred, I mean, isn't, isn't it a proper question to say, well, why do you want a trial in this language or that language? I mean, you've got to get to the point somehow, it seems to me. Certainly, Justice Rowe, it is appropriate to make questions of an accused um, related to their choice of, of, of language. The key is to, as you suggested, is to, is to point out at the very beginning, at the outset of the inquiry, that the judge is not seeking to learn any information uh, that may have been exchanged between the accused person and their counsel. I think provided that that clear direction is made at the outset of the inquiry, Justice Rowe, I think that it's proper for the judge to continue in the inquiry. All right. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much. Reply by Ms. Alaksa. Before you start, I have a question for you. Your learned friend says that that there's evidence uh, through different methods that your client was aware of his language rights. I'm looking at paragraph 125 of the appeal court decision. The appeal court stated that this is a that you with knowledge of his language rights. Nor do I infer from the presence of the notices that Mr. Tayo was aware of his language rights. According to the Court of Appeal, the case doesn't, does not allow the Crown to discharge that burden. I say that because in light of the findings of the Court of Appeal, what we see is that the evidence doesn't reveal that, and that is exactly the burden of the Crown, they had demonstrated an the accused discharged his burden without uh, presenting any affidavits. There is no reason to 
adduce additional evidence to do more on this case. Particularly after the Crown clearly indicated that the curative proviso was not, was not going to be applied. I would like to respond to the arguments presented by the respondent when it comes to the instrumentalization of the right. According to the appellant, one of the objectives, one of the key objectives of the legislature was to address this problem with the informational component. If this mandatory provision is respected, which is not the case here, the evidence should be in the case file everywhere. But I see that in Bolak, the discussion of the doubtful value of the provision was in, in light of how to demonstrate the issue. What comes out is that just Basteras wonders whether this provision applies to everyone. That will have been in the case. We'll have seen that in the transcriptions, in the transcripts at a time when the appellant learned about his right to have a trial in the official language of his choice. To that, let me add that every time that the provision, the informational component is violated, there is a Crown prosecutor who is in the room and looking into the file. There's no affidavit from that prosecutor. There is no evidence to that effect. We have no idea whether the Crown was even paying attention to that violation taking place during the initial appearance. If the Crown wanted to eliminate all cases of violations of 530 paragraph 3, the Crown could have easily done so. It is a clear obligation, it is a simple obligation, and it is clear that it wasn't raised by the judge during the initial appearance. That is the, that's the purpose of the legislature. That's how we eliminate the problem of evidence. Instead of coming up with a new burden of proof that is being placed on the accused who has already demonstrated that his right was violated. I would like to briefly respond to the respondent's argument concerning what took place during the trial and the question that was put to him as to whether he discussed with his counsel in French. Some of those interactions are in a condensed book, tab four. It's the last page, 173. The accused is asked by his counsel whether he spoke with him Counsel in French, is that right? Mais sa réponse c'est what is Sa réponse c'est what is his response is what is counsel and he responds no not at all une, possi une possibilité claire de cet échange we see from this interaction that he did not even understand the question and he quickly answered in a way that he would not have done if he was being spoken to in his mother tongue, French. Mr. Laxa, I would like to 
step in and say something about this question by the Chief Justice. Besides the question of methodology, I wonder if we should rely on the Court of Appeals paragraph 125. Let me explain. At 121, the Court of Appeal explains, and you pleaded wrongly. Bears the onus of establishing that his substantive rights were violated. To succeed, his position must be grounded in the record, together with any fresh or new evidence that may be presented, and any reasonable inferences that may be available. In my view, he has not discharged that onus. Alors, ce qui suit, dont le paragraphe 125. So what follows in paragraph 125 is uh, the explanation of the fact that in spite of the signs in the file, the notice, and so on, all this, considering the fact that he, he bears the burden, your client bears the burden, cannot demonstrate that his substantial right was violated. If we decide that the appeal court was wrong on by placing the burden of Mr. Tombuba, are we bound by 125? In 125, the Court of Appeals finding is clear. At that time, yes, you are bound, and the reason is as follows. The Court of Appeals analysis is not different when it comes to the evidence because they place the burden on the accused. The Court of Appeals finding is that the evidence doesn't allow us reach a conclusion, and that is what we see in 125. Given the gaps in the record, those salient facts cannot be reasonably discerned because he bore the burden. May, As may, it says in 124 first sentence, I am not prepared to infer that Mr. Tayo Tombuba was unaware of his section 3530 rights based solely on the fact that he was not informed of those rights. <laughs> so this conditions all that follows. The question is, if he felt that the file demonstrated that he was aware, there is no reason for him not to have said it in 125. It's even stronger now. Looking at the file, they said we are not able to arrive at the conclusion. And the burden was even placed on the accused. If the burden were on the other party, the conclusion would have even been stronger. I would like to add the testimony I'm referring to, which took place during the trial, that the Court of Appeal doesn't even mention in that exchange. I'm open to your questions. The Court will take the case under advisement. Thank you very much. Have a great day.